and welcome to Mint and Burn, the academic analysis of blockchain and other technologies in the decentralized digital economy. I'm your host, Kelsey Nabin, and we are tuning in remotely from the RMIT University Blockchain Innovation Hub to bring you expert guests and test frontier ideas. Today, we're speaking with Professor Heath McDonald, alongside Professor Chris Berg and distinguished Professor Jason Potts on blockchain community building as a sport. So Heath McDonald is a Dean of Economics, Finance and Marketing at RMIT, as well as a Professor of Marketing. His research focuses on the field of customer acquisition and retention, particularly in subscription markets, such as season tickets and memberships. So informed by this marketing science perspective, we're going to see what we can learn about building blockchain communities. And Chris Berg is going to help us guide the conversation today. Over to you, Chris. Thanks, Kelsey, and um, thanks, Heath, for joining us. And, of course, um, thanks to Jason. Heath, this is a really exciting conversation that I've been looking forward to have because um, offline we were talking about um, the relationship between blockchain community management and sports community management and sports community management and how you build an engaged um, and interested and loyal community is your research specialisation. So I was wondering whether you... Just to kick us off, whether you could talk us through how how do you think about building a um, engaged fan community in the in in the sports field? Yeah, thanks, Chris. Um, probably no different than we think about any engaged community, except I guess sports is such an interesting area to study, typically because of the passion that sports fans have for the product and their willingness to discuss it and talk about it. So it's always nice to research something where you're not pulling teeth. You actually get quite a bit of a, a free information offered to you. In fact, you know, I can I can do my research on anyone from my Uber driver through to our professors because, you know, it's just such a universally interesting topic or anyone has an opinion on it. So that's, that's kind of nice. But... Look, I really, uh, I started this a long time ago when really I started my academic career. I was working with someone called Professor Byron Sharp that, that you may know, some of your listeners may know, who's had a really big impact on the field of, of marketing. Uh, his book, How Brands Grow, has really become a bit of a, a staple now amongst a lot of organisations. And it's been hugely influential in that it's got people to really think about marketing generalisations or, or laws of marketing that apply to all consumer markets. And so a lot of my work has been sort of applying those ideas to different contexts, in, including sport. And one of the big realisations from that work is that uh, uh, markets really can be seen as two types. You've got your repertoire markets and your subscription markets. My work focuses very heavily on the subscription markets. But the repertoire markets are things like fast-moving consumer goods, your supermarket-type products. And they're called repertoire markets because people typically uh, have a small repertoire of products they buy from in each category. So they'll have four or five brands that they'll buy from in each category. So shampoo, for example, you might have a brand that you favor that gets 80% of your purchases across a year, but there might be three or four others that you buy from there. And uh, as you can imagine, that when they started to see these patterns in repeated uh, consumer databases, it became obvious that this idea of like consumer loyalty needs a rethink. Um, and so that's, that's been an interesting thing to take into, into my work. But subscription markets are really where my focus is, and we know a lot less about those. So they're your things like uh, where there's some sort of contractual arrangement to uh, buy a service over, over a period of time. So think about your gym memberships, insurance products, Netflix, these sorts of things. And I guess the bulk of my work has been in, in sporting uh, club memberships, season ticket holder uh, scenarios and, and the like. 
So we know a lot less about those. Um, as I say, they're, they're different because they have this formality to them and tend to find that consumers stay a bit more loyal to one particular provider. So you, it's unusual to have perhaps more than one home insurer, for example. Uh, so we see different patterns of behaviour. Uh, you also see in those circumstances, quite often the sorts of companies offering uh, subscription products package them as membership products. So they're almost inviting people to become part of the organisation. And so you see that they work well for organisations where people have a lot of passion for the product uh, and and you can get a lot more sort of fandom there. Uh, so even for things that you typically don't think of as having fans, but, um, uh, you know, so, so, you know, we see that in your blockchain communities, you might have fans of certain uh, certain products there. And certainly that's the case in sport. You get get people who are consumers, but they're, they're, they're really passionate. They have a strong fandom uh, and a strong degree of loyalty that you just don't see in, say, those fast-moving consumer good products. So I'm probably best known for my work in, in sporting organisations, helping them design and build these membership programs uh, to really maximise their, their growth and retention. And, uh, yeah, I've been doing that for about about 20 years now. Look, there's a, there's a lot of ways we could go with this conversation um, based on that. And I think there's there's a lot of things to pull out. But well, how how do you view so so when you're looking at a sporting organisation, you've got a fan base, um, and that fan base is going to be very broad based, and um, they might watch the sport on television, they might attend a match or or so forth. But what you're interested in when you're helping sporting clubs is actually driving those I, I'm going to call them casual fans into becoming committed members of the community now at the first instance that's you know pay a membership fee but it's it's more than that isn't it it's it's also just being part of online conversations about about a team or proselytizing the team to friends or or driving their membership how do you how do you think about moving that casual fandom to that more dedicated um value driving fandom yeah that's that's an interesting point and and it does tend to be a something that you're trying to do is, is increase the degree of, of fandom and engagement of, of individuals. But one of the things that, that really came out of Byron Sharp's work is that, you know, his answer to the question, how brands grow, is that they grow by attracting more light users. And so if you want to be a large organization, really, of any type, if you want to have a large customer base, you've got to be good at appealing to people who are light users, who don't typically, uh, you know, aren't that passionate, aren't that driven, aren't that connected. They're not heavy users. They're not coming back every week. They're, they're purchasing occasionally and they're connecting occasionally. So let, let's talk about how I, I use that in the, in the sport work. Well, when I started working with, with the sport teams that I work with, I've worked with sort of over 50 different teams across a bunch of different sports now, but they're all pretty much the same when I started. And that was their emphasis was on winning. And the philosophy of the, the, the teams was very much, if we're successful on field, fans will come. Bit of a field of dreams type type thing. And uh, and that was true because that was the only real marketing effort they were doing. They, they just thought if we win, the fans will come. And lo and behold, when they didn't win and the success wasn't there, the fans and the members dropped off. Because frankly, what is the point of buying a season ticket to games that you don't really want to see? If they're not particularly good or they're not, not particularly entertaining. So sure, they kept a hardcore base, but they'd see this massive wash in and wash out of fans as their success changed. And it's almost a perfect correlation between you know, ladder position, how, how good you were each year and, and what you'd have uh, in terms of your membership base. So we tried to unpack that and we, we really started by saying, well, what is it that, that attracts fans? And looking particularly at those connected 
hardcore fans who tended to stay on as members year after year despite the, the on-field performance and asked them what it was that they, they got out of it. And you know, essentially, cutting to the chase, the answer here was, was really that they were joining because they wanted to feel part of something. And yes, it was nice to see the team win, but the payoff for that win really only came through years of sort of dedicated fandom and connection and feeling connected to the organisation. So as we sort of quantify this through surveys, we, we now see that that really on-field success contributes only less than 10%, typically around 5% of a season ticket holder's satisfaction. And something like 30 to 40% of the satisfaction comes from how connected and involved they feel, how much they feel part of the club. So... In essence, you know, about 75% of a member's satisfaction comes from things that are directly manageable from the club, uh, not so much on-field performance and these other things. Kelsey, what, what does this look like to you as somebody who's been involved in a lot of blockchain communities? Does that parallel work? It sounds really plausible to me that you need to have a community that is loyal and engaged regardless of the price action of the token or regardless of um, the state of the crypto markets. Um, how, how do you think through that? I, I think there's a lot there that we can build on. Yeah, it's actually a, a fascinating correlation. And just a, as you've been speaking, Heath, I've been furiously writing notes. But, you know, to your point around a passion for the product, you know, a lot of people, the real kind of um, OG participants in this space are very ideologically aligned to a lot of the ideas around cryptocurrency and, you know, autonomy, self-governance, decentralization, and some of these things. and then. In terms of thinking of uh, participants in different protocols or different decentralized autonomous organizations or, or DAOs, these kinds of um, organizations that are built on on blockchains to allow people to to participate in their own governance, it's really interesting to think about the kind of cultural dynamics of those as well. So as you've pointed out, you know, people are there to feel part of something bigger than themselves and and kind of have a sense of belonging. And what we're seeing in the crypto space on the kind of very cutting edge of these DAOs is that they're doing these kind of cultural builds to be able to articulate not just the objective but also the kind of values of the community to attract those like members. Yeah, so yeah, you've got me thinking about a whole range of things, but that some of the, the parallels in sport. Uh, when we think about sport fans, often the image that comes to mind is that face-painted maniac screaming you know, obsessively at the umpire or the referee for some decision that's been made. And, uh, you know, they've got all the merchandise on, they're fully committed, you know, they've got tattoos, their life is basically committed to the team and, and their hardcore. Interestingly, when we started talking to so even long-term members of the club, those people are a very tiny fraction of the sport fan population. And they're, they're not aspirational for the bulk of club members and club fans. So they're, they're kind of a unique group that, um, yes, it's nice to have them and they provide a bit of entertainment, but the average fan does not want to become that person long-term. And, uh, and we had some really interesting sort of feedback where, where people were saying... Um, 
those sorts of fans can actually be very off-putting to the rest of the community because they often question the integrity and and uh, and commitment of those around them. So, you know, in, in in sport, you often have season ticket holders sitting in reserved seats. So you've got the same seat every week. And so you're sitting next to the same bunch of people, whether you like it or not, uh, and it's difficult to move. But some of these hardcore fans would actually watch and see who didn't turn up. And if you didn't turn up one week and you turned up the next, that they'd, they'd have a go at you. Like, where were you last week? We really needed your support. And so the clubs would get feedback of, please don't sit me next to this guy because he just, you know, he hounds me i had to go to my sister's wedding and you know he didn't accept that as a reasonable excuse so you get this there is this sort of disconnect between you know for some people the fandom is actually almost you know pathological and just not normal it's not aspirational so you've got to be a bit careful about modeling too much of what you say the community is about on that really hardcore because that they're not they're not normal they're nice but they're not they're not normal and they're not aspirational so for, for our listeners who are familiar with crypto communities, this is a massive problem <laughs> um, in, in crypto, of course. Jason, um, I might throw to you, though. Um, uh, you're, as an economist, um, w- you've got a model of clubs based on um, uh, the, the internalization of, exter- of positive externalities um, and, and a sort of mechanistic model of clubs that you know funds local public goods and um drives value in between its members and so forth using that framework and maybe you'll explain that much better than i but using that framework how do you think about the creation of these clubs the creation of that that club identity we've been talking about yeah thanks Chris. Like, it's it's a fascinating question here because i mean i think just just for our listeners just to give them some context to this um heath is actually our boss in the school of economics finance and marketing and we're a bunch of economists and finance people and you know we in the crypto space um are very comfortable with the idea that finance and economics and different types of economic good is just exactly what we would do and we didn't really quite see why, why marketing would be relevant so um heath was just checking in on us one day and we started to explain what we were doing and we made this connection that um, these sorts of financial products and financial services and economic designs um, that, that we were describing here um, actually looked a lot more like the sorts of sports marketing team problems that, that Heath was, was, was dealing with. And, and that notion that, um, that we have a type of economic product that is being built or an economic good that isn't sort of a private good or a public good, it's a club good. And the thing about a club good is a group of people come together to create it. And it's the, the good is actually the other people in, in, in this sense. And this, this notion of, of, uh, of rethinking, you know, crypto and uh, crypto, which you know, on the face of it looks like a savings technology or a financial service or a money or, a, you know, it's an economic good. And this realization that it's none of those things at all. It's actually um, a group of people coming together to um, jointly produce something. And it was that insight that we, when we just sort of realized that actually, um, and, and it's also is doing it quite, you know, hilariously badly sometimes and, and accidentally spectacularly well at other times, but just this notion that there was actually a body of research and understanding out there that had been dealing with this for decades and had a deep and sophisticated understanding of these club goods. Um, you know, we talk about, um, Heath was talking about sports clubs as actual clubs, but in economics, a club good is a, is a very particular type of economic object where 
it's a, you know, a jointly produced good where you care about who else is in the in, in the room and you care about who else is is, is there. So that that notion that um, you know economic this that, that the crypto community actually looks less like Wall Street and more like um, you know think of your favorite sports stadium and all of the you know um, the, the fun times that, that go on there. But that 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 community is collectively producing something and there are governance issues and there is marketing challenges and there is design problems and there is you know, the, the, some people are heavily involved and others others are not and just that that notion of putting together um, that you know, marketers have been looking at this for years and they've developed a lot of understanding of exactly these types of problems and you know we've been in the crypto space for a long time and it's never occurred to us that sports would be the obvious academic um, area to try and understand the, the thing that we're, we're looking at. So, um, so look, I'm going to ask Heath and Kelsey the same question. Um, uh, to you first, Heath, um, what does a good community in sport at least look like? What you've told us what a, what a bad community or what bad community members are or off-putting community members are. What, what does engagement look like apart from just paying the yearly fees? Yeah. So one of the things that we need to really think about it is, is to what extent you want to keep this community tight and small mm. or to what extent you want to grow it. Now, the, the sport communities I work with tend to be, you know, um, uh, profit focused or at least, you know, revenue focused and they're trying to grow. And so for them, a good community is one that's that's accessible, that's open and, and brings people in. So, uh, you know, we know the only way to grow is to, is to increasingly reach out to lighter and lighter users. Um, people that have less, perhaps, you know, that, that hardcore engagement. And so it's pretty important then that, uh, that you're not too restrictive on, on, on access, that you, you do ex- exercise control over the way in which members communicate with each other. Uh, and, you know, all you have to do is to step inside a, a sporting team online community and you'll see just how much sort of flaming and fighting goes on between members and, and just how quickly it becomes, uh, you know, unacceptable for, for children to be in there and all sorts of things. So, you know, they've got to got to exercise some control over that. And I guess that's one of the big issues that we might pick up later. But, uh, uh, you know, when you have these sorts of brands, you get both official and unofficial communities starting up. And so the clubs can only really directly control the official ones. And you see a lot of bad behavior going on in the unofficial. But a good community really for for our purposes is one that makes people feel involved. And, and I've got to say, out of all the things that sporting teams do and, and have improved, so the sporting teams I work with now have four or five times the membership base they had when I started because they've been able to do this growth. And it's come through making people feel involved. And that's involved moving away from transactional arrangements. So they no longer sell season tickets as access to seven games you know, entry that you pay $200 for. That's a very transactional thing. Now it's about if you want to feel part of this organization, you become a member. And so backing that up, their communications emphasize the importance of being a member over being a fan. So they make that distinction. And you'll hear even coaches of these clubs say, well, today's win was for our members who have stood by us. You know, the last 10 weeks we've been terrible. They'll, they'll use that distinction. Uh, they allow voting rights, which incidentally, no one uses. So you look at, you know, Collingwood Football Club here in Australia, you know, 
70, 80,000 members, they'll be lucky if they get 300 people to turn up and actually vote. You know, a good night, we might get 600. So they all have the right to vote. No one use it, but you try and take that voting right away from them. You try and say, hey, we're thinking of reducing it, and there'll be uproar because it's, it, it has that psychological uh, benefit of making people feel that they, they're, they're part of it. They've got a say in the organisation. And so that's a large. That's the, one of the ways you keep the doors open to people um, with a fairly uh, cost-free uh, alternative. And then it's really largely about about communications and personalisation, recognising individuals. So a weird thing happens when when fans and members call the club and, and want to engage with the club. Is I often hear these conversations when I'm, when I'm at the clubs and, and people answering the phone, they get into a very personal conversation straight away about, oh, did you see the win on the weekend? And, and people want to engage and, and people want to talk about their specific situation. Oh, I want to bring my cousin Barry along to the game this week. Can you help me out? So it's quite an interesting and personal consumer conversation straight away. They've got to have awesome databases sitting behind that. They've really got to be able to very quickly bring up how long has this person been with the club? Who do they normally sit with? Those sorts of databases are incredibly important to to be able to have that personal communication that people want. And you really need to be able to avoid things like, you know, I've known situations where clubs' databases have got messed up. They've sent out mass emails that have, you know, uh, depersonalised or incorrectly personalised messages, and it's destroyed trust on a massive level. So, you know, a lot of it is is very soft issues, intangibles. Making people feel involved is is the hardest thing these clubs have to do. Kelsey, why don't I throw the same question to you? There's like four or five things that he's just said that I want to pick up, including the voting and the um the soft touch stuff. But what what is a good community? Let's let's start big picture. What does a good community look like in in the blockchain space? Yeah, well, I'd say it's quite bespoke depending on the goals. Like when, even when we talk about you know the blockchain space, we could be talking about a protocol. We could be talking about a decentralized application, so just an app that sits on top of a protocol, or as I mentioned before, kind of DAOs of these decentralized organizations. So I wouldn't say that there's like a one-size-fits-all for community, but perhaps a helpful delineation is this approach um, that a colleague, Michael Zagam, and I term kind of product thinking and infrastructure thinking. So in the one sense, blockchain communities need to operate like products in the sense that they need to attract uh, that attention. They need the kind of user base and the kind of, you know, uh, sort of fandom in a way. But then in another sense, they're an infrastructure. So they enable possibilities for people to actually participate in an ongoing long-term manner as kind of this engaged member idea. And that's, you know, perhaps towards the more, um, organic sort of growth that that Heath mentioned is is that kind of infrastructure thinking and I think many times blockchain communities need to sort of uh, straddle both of those simultaneously which is which is quite a challenge and then to Heath's point about uh, recognition and reward I just see that um, as a great area of of challenge and need in these communities because uh, Often that kind of, I mean, even the idea of a database and the kind of tracking of, uh, you know, participation or contribution or labor or, you know, incentive alignment, if that's through token ownership, is kind of against some of the ideologies around kind of anonymity, perhaps. And so how do you 
kind of recognize and aptly reward your participants, but also kind of operate in line with the values of the community. So there's so much opportunity here for, you know, Heath and people like Heath with his area of expertise to actually contribute in blockchain in a way that I'd never really thought about it. Jason, I, I might throw to you, I, I want to pick up on, um, Heath has pointed out one of my favorite topics, which is voting. Um, and how we think about the function of the, voting is a formal way you might interact with a community. It's a it's a particular moment where you're given a proposal or given um, uh, someone that you might elect to a position, and you're told to you know make make a particular decision on that. It's 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 the opposite of soft. It's a hard decision that people in 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 the sporting communities, as Heath has mentioned, do not tend to exercise. We've thought a lot about voting and most people in the blockchain space are very concerned by low levels of voting, which, you know, when we talk to um, projects, we're less worried about. But how do you think about the the choice to vote and what the function of voting is in a blockchain community? Yeah, so voting is a really interesting thing because it's a, it's a, it's a mechanism um, to enable a group of people to sort of make a collective decision, right? So in the sense, um, when we vote, we're trying, we need, we're wanting to do a thing. We want to, you know, in, a, in an election, you know, choose between these two parties or, or whatever. But we need some way to aggregate all of the individual preferences. And that's the sort of standard theory of voting is that voting is a, a mechanism for a group to make a decision. And, and you know, the benefit of, of a well-designed voting mechanism is that you get all of, the in, all of the individual preferences and information from each individual all goes into the voting machine. And then we get a good collective decision. And in that sense, if that's the case, you want everyone to vote because you want all of the information in there. Um, the other way to think about voting, so, so that's the that's the voting as an efficient mechanism for aggregating preferences model. The other way to think about voting is that it's a consumption good. It's it's a it's a thing that you consume and you do it because you know you get a sausage at the end of it after you voted and you get to wear a little sticker and you get to sort of participate in your Aussiness or your or whatever it is that you're. you're it's a it's a a, a, a sort of an a. Um, you know, a, a as a, a way to participate in a community and to do your part by, by registering and, and, and doing that. So in that case, um, it's not so much the voting that matters, it's the being seen to vote or the, 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 um, the, you know, all of the sort of um, ceremonial and, and, and public aspects of that. Um, you don't want to do it privately and, and so on. So two very, very different models of what voting does um, in the sense of it's an efficient decision-making algorithm or it's a consumption good. And I think what's interesting in the sports situations, as Heath described, is, is that um, you know, maybe we want all of the fans to use all of their individual information and all, you know, 100,000 of them to you know, take what they've observed. We aggregate that up and we choose the best color for the, you know, or we get the best you know, team on instead. Um, instead, you know, we, we actually have managers to do that, or we have coaches to do that, we have specialists to do that, or politicians or representatives or whatever to do that. And in many cases, voting is just an expressive mechanism that I need to have because it's part of my rights as a community member. It enables me to participate. It's my, it's a, it's a, it's a, an asset that I have that means I can participate in the community. Now, I might not choose to do it. I might not, as a consumption good, it's it's it's, it's a thing. So, so the interesting thing then is is sports voting, consumption good. Political voting, you know, maybe both. DAO voting, it's unclear what it is. 
It really is. Is it? Is it? Is you know? In one sense, you can say, no, we want our community to make good decisions. So we need to aggregate this all up. On the other hand, if you look at Dow voting in practice, it looks a lot more like a consumption good of people yelling at each other and and having a great time. Um, just doing that. So I, I, I think this is where we're at right now. It's just even this basic question of um, we know voting is important. We don't know why. Jason, there have been uh, sporting clubs that have, have tried that model, a, a full uh, fan-based decision-making approach, like you know who's going to play this week, even even that level. And, and you know, they've had some success, but um, they end up tearing each other apart, as, as it turns out, as you expect. You know, because uh, in, in the end, um, you know, often crowdsourcing decisions with technical importance is not the best way to go. Again, something that is direct relevance to the Dow space. Just, just uh, without dwelling too much on it, how do um, sports fans or members? How do they think about their responsibility to the club? So maybe their responsibility to vote, or do they do they feel that the ownership is more than just a consumption, and that they owe the club? something as well yeah long term you know you mentioned engagement and how you know we should try to to increase that and and the ultimate goal is is moving towards what, what marketers call co-creation where, where you know the fans would be actively involved in in designing products and 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 uh, and the operation of the of the organization so it's kind of seamless but um yeah we're, we're a fair way off that in in practice um i think fans see their obligation from discussions we've had as very much just to support and, and as they as they really settle on a team and become part of that that community, they they start to see that support as, as unconditional. So even when the team's doing very very badly and things are falling apart, they can criticise, but their support is is a given, and they, and they stay on board. Um. So Heath, staying with you, how do you think about the role of loyalty? Obviously, loyalty is super important in the sporting context, but we're just thinking about loyalty as loyalty to a community, a DAO community, a, a token, or so forth. What 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 role does loyalty play? So this is probably what separates me from um, my sport marketing colleagues in, in academia is that I came from, as I mentioned, that, that Byron Sharp view, which is very much empirical generalizations and data-based and a fairly behavioralist sort of approach. It's quite quite cold and unfeeling. And most people in sport are very enamored with this idea of sport fans being passionate um, you know, uh, Uber consumers. And so my, my view was very much that the that they wouldn't be loyal because we don't see loyalty very often in, in most consumer markets. Consumers are polygamous. They buy from a range of brands who either by choice or by force. Um, you know, so if you look at actual behavior, if you, if you listen to what people tell you, they'll say, oh, that's my brand. I always buy that. But then you watch what they do and they don't do that at all. And so I had sort of half expected to see that in sport and we've pursued that you know, line of inquiry and, and, and that's very much the case. So just looking at AFL, Australian football, the members that we see, 20, about 20% of a club's membership base, so these are season ticket holders, they've paid for 11 games in AFL, uh, they're entitled to access to 11 games, about 20% won't go to any games at all in person throughout the course of a year. Um, up to half of the members of an AFL club also have a membership to another sporting club, a rugby club, a soccer club. You know, Australia is a pretty intense sporting environment, and people tend to tend to have multiple interests. But yeah, that's you know that's that's common. They've got multiple season ticket uh, memberships. Um, almost all of the, the members of a club will watch games not involving their club, so they're, they're consuming 
other brands in that sense. So we see, you know, and we've seen this across all, all sports, basically. Sport fans do have a repertoire of sports they're consuming, some heavily, some not so heavily. They'll they'll dip into other things. They'll watch the occasional boxing match or something like that. But they, they are showing that sort of polygamous consumer behavior. Very few are 100% loyal, and they tend to be people that don't consume sport very often. The only people that only ever watch one game of a particular club, it's probably because they only watch one game all year. So we don't see that loyalty. And I would fully expect in your blockchain communities that you don't own the members of that community. The members of your community are also members of other communities. That will be, be perfectly normal to see that. I'd be, be shocked if it wasn't. And that has all sorts of implications. It means that your community members are experiencing what it's like to be members of other communities and they're judging you on that. Is this community providing better service and better engagement than that community? I have members of, of sport teams tell me, oh, I'm married to a, a, a you know, member of another sport team. That, that's a very common scenario. And I'll say, and they got this in their you know, membership pack or they're allowed to do this. Um, so they're making those comparisons. They're not operating in this vacuum where they only know one one brand and, and living that. So you know, it's really important that we, we understand that we just don't own these consumers. We don't own these community members. And, and it's sort of by design in crypto, right? So if, if you view as, um, cryptocurrencies as financial assets, well, um, portfolio theory says you should diversify. So um, sort of by definition, you're going to be a member of a, or at least you're going to be a soft fan of of multiple um, token projects and so forth. Kelsey, I mean, I, I think this is a super interesting point because in crypto, right, we've got a lot of cross-fertilization of different communities. And you could talk about, you've got particular ecosystems where if you're a member of one um, uh, one DAO, you're probably going to be a member of a, a DAO across the road. Um, how do you think about that that interaction and that that sort of almost competitive dynamic between multiple communities? Yeah, I would say there's been you know quite a cultural evolution over the past you know even two to five years because crypto very much started out with the maximalists. So if you held or spoke about or liked anything other than the main thing you were you know ousted on you know social media yelling matches um, which again isn't isn't very attractive to participate in in a community of that sort of level of extreme politics perhaps but now I think communities are figuring out that they can actually get these network benefits so there's a lot of conversation about um you know, sort of intra-protocol relationships or DAO-to-DAO relations. And we've had some of those, um, you know, sort of leading thinkers in that space on, on the podcast. I'm thinking of um, Sherman Boschmager, for example. But to think about, well, actually, if you're participating in multiple communities, what, uh, what benefits can you bring from the other and then what can you give back to actually um, to, to multiply the upside then for, for everyone in this broad field of, of blockchain stuff, which is really interesting. And Jason, it's that knowledge sharing that's incredibly important, isn't it? So um, innovations that can start in, in one community can be shared and distributed and networked around multiple communities as well. Isn't that right? Yeah, it is. It's, and I think it's it's interesting, as, as Kelsey was pointing out, that you know, in the beginning there was just one community. There was just the Bitcoin, the Bitcoin universe, and then you know, other layer one. You know, Ethereum was obviously the next one to sort of emerge out, and and Ethereum is a, is kind of like a, this huge sports league. Where you've got lots of different teams that have that have emerged in that, 
but you it but i think i mean what's so in that sense you've got sort of projects as you know the analog of com, of, of 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 teams in, in this space and you're all but you're all more or less playing in the ethereum league for instance or, or, or the cosmos league or, or, or whatever but what's interesting is seeing it not just from the you know layer one and then layer two spaces but also we're starting to see some emergent sort of nft um behaviors so in, in nft land everyone says good morning to each other and that's the thing that you do and that distinguishes that culture from you know all of the, the you know um, the other types of of communities and, and they're starting to sort of have these ways of recognizing each other and signaling to each other and there's different types of knowledge and rewards that are that come from that so you know, we can think of some airdrops which are technically the purpose of an airdrop is it's a decentralization mechanism but it's also a community reward. It's also a thing that a community can gift back to itself. And different communities do it in different ways. And some, some are sort of more mysterious, and 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 um, you know the the um, the process sort of plays out in, in the, on all of the various chats. And other ones, it's sort of coded in right from the start. So you, so again, you start to see these different community behaviors. That as, as Heath was saying. Um, Others are sort of looking at him going, wow, they're having so much fun over there. Maybe it's time for me to leave, you know, um, the DeFi space and move into NFT space. And um, but it's 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 interesting that that you know that's that's not a top-down design the thing that's that's happening. It's just these communities are just sort of learning new behaviors um, and and starting to influence each other. So it's it's kind of like a an emergent sports league is sort of is is, is coming up. Um, but again, also to Heath's point, you are clearly seeing people across multiple um, projects, and they've got you know scarce attention and time to allocate to each of these, and they're obviously going to allocate it not just to the place where they're making the most money. Um, in fact, I, my guess is to a first approximation, that's not what's going on. It's where they're having the most fun or getting the most sense of of being part of something, um, and then putting effort in. And and you know, given that these are club goods. The more effort everyone puts in, the more is actually created. Um, there is a real positive feedback dynamic between that sort of creation of a really high-functioning, fun community that has a really strong sense of participation and what is actually being produced. And again, that's also what happens in sports, right? This is you know you're there to be um, to have a good time together and and you know, lift your team up and the team perform. You know, so there's a whole lot of sort of um, it's a collectively or t- collectively produced product that isn't just 11 players producing some entertainment for some others. It's everyone is producing entertainment for, for the whole community. One of the things we see quite often, Jason, in, in marketing, and it's really is one of the laws of marketing, is this idea of, of the double jeopardy effect. And basically what that says is, is that it's good to be big. That um, whilst it might be nice to have a small, tight community that's really you know, participating and active, size really matters when it comes to market outcomes. And the double jeopardy effect essentially shows that... Um, uh, Large brands, brands with more customers, uh, also experience slightly more loyalty with those customers. So those customers tend to buy them more often. If you're a small share brand, you have less customers and your customers are slightly less loyal. They're, they're buying other brands. They're buying the big brand, of course. So I would think in this space, these these blockchain-based communities, growing is really important. If you if you want to be successful and you want your, your token or, or et cetera to be, be successful, you want as many people in your community as, as possible. 
And the way you really build that is through through mental availability and physical availability. So mental availability is really about you know, do people know about you, do they know what you stand for? And physical availability, can they access you? They're the two things that drive drive size, market share. So so we really know that there are a lot of benefits from from being big and and that the focus should really be not on necessarily being different or unique, but should be on just growing those those assets of, of physical and mental availability to, to increase the size of your community. Heath, I'll just follow that up with, if we want to build a big community or if we want to build a big and engaged community, how, how can we find out what they want? Or, or, or even does our community know what they want? I mean, I, I, if you asked a blockchain community, what would they like? They would say, well, I'd like the number to go up and I'd like to be listened to. Um, but how, how do you try to sort of navigate that um, drawing out the desires of that engaged community? Yeah, I, I'm not a, a deep qualitative researcher, so I, I don't tend to sort of to probe into people's minds too heavily, and because I, you know, often we respect not, the privacy too. Much, I do, I do, but also, you know, uh, people aren't that great at articulating why they do things. In the end, I, I, I much prefer to look at the behaviour, and and what we know that people's behaviour is connected to. They'll, they'll keep coming back to something that you know is providing them with entertainment, providing them with a, a sense of belonging uh, and, and and generally fulfilling their new needs. So, you know, you can ask them in a fairly basic format, um, what is it about this community that makes it good? And you can ask people to say, well, describe a, a, a good community. What's what's your ideal? And, and from that, you'll get a good sense of the sorts of things they value. But, um, you know, typically it's pretty simple. Um, and what's really important to respect here is that people are going to have different levels of ideal engagement. So we talked a little bit before about, about wanting to increase engagement. We've got to be careful not to get into this trap of thinking, all right, I've got to put everyone on an engagement escalator and you're currently you know, chipping in once a month with a, with a comment, but I'd like to get you up to where you're you know, doing that three times a week and uh, you know, the average word length of each contribution is this and you've done this and you've done X. You know, because the person might go, oh, that's not really fun for me and that's not what I wanted to do here. So you've got to really, I think that's the more important question to ask is what level of engagement is satisfying for you and, and will keep you doing what you're currently doing? Uh, do you have the opportunity to engage more if you wish to? And that's it's, so it's really about providing opportunities to engage more um, and, and then recognising that people are going to have different ideal levels. So making sure your, your community can provide a really high level of engagement if people want it. Um, you can back off and get, let people just find what they want if they're happy with that. But you're, you're able to, to you know, provide more opportunities as people's interest in, in engaging grows. That's a really interesting point. And um, I'll pass on to Kelsey because when we talk to a lot of blockchain teams and particularly in the DAO space, we, um, are, we're told that they're looking for high engaged, high quality community members. But in fact, what you need is you, you need... Um, not just the sp full spectrum of engagement from casual to engaged. You need individuals to be able to make those choices along that menu and not to feel like they're a lesser member or not to feel like they're a lesser participant in the community because they don't, they, they're not constantly tweeting or they're not constantly on the discord. Kelsey, mm -hmm. I, how do you see that? do you do you share that diagnosis there do you think some some projects are just trying to drive towards the ideal member that is that is is engaged as a full-time developer or, or 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 am i or am i heading down the wrong path no i think i think you're spot on uh there chris and and heath to your point about 
wanting to provide opportunities for genuine engagement rather than just escalating the level of engagement required. I mean, that's probably a really important point for a lot of uh, blockchain projects to reflect on because what they're doing is incentive design. And I would say, you know, generally blockchain communities are, are quite aware of that. So in the same way that you design incentives in the marketing structures you're coming up with, it's the same with with blockchain systems, but often they're trying to get as much attention as possible until people are, you know, completely burned out. And even though you're part of 10 communities, every single community wants you kind of full-time engaged and then, you know, you need a big break from everything. Whereas if people actually looked at then those patterns of, of behaviour, as you, t- you call them, you know, patterns of consumer behaviour, they could reflect on the implications of the incentives that they've tried to design. So I really like that as a, a kind of analysis method and I really like the idea of, of thinking about opportunities rather than increase. Yeah, so that would be my advice to the to people managing these communities is, is recognise that, you know, you still get a lot of value out of having a lot of fairly dormant members in that community. It's it's keeping your awareness levels up. They're talking to their friends. It, it's, you know, it, it's keeping you up there and will have big benefits when, you know, you, 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 you try to achieve anything in the marketplace. It's you've got this large community that already knows you and is talking about you. Uh, but, um, you know, we see this in sport all the time and, and, and people shouldn't beat themselves up about not having the answer. This idea about engagement and to what extent we should engage and how we should do it is it's very cutting edge of where the marketing research is at right now. We don't have the answers. What we're seeing is hardcore engagement, real co-creation is, is really nice amongst a few people. You get a lot of benefits as an organisation, but that actually doesn't correlate well with a lot of other business outcomes such as profitability and, and the like. So um, you don't want everyone doing that. And, and this is pretty nuanced and, and does require a pretty pretty sensitive managerial touch. No, no, it's an interesting thing as a lot of teams build out their products and then launch a DAO or a token and a Discord channel, they realize, wow, a lot of what we do now is community management, which is just customer service on over um, a Discord channel. Um, I might wrap up, though, with a question again to you, Heath. Um, when you think about, and I, I understand that, you know, you're not as deeply into the blockchain communities particularly, but as we describe them to you, what is it that you're most interested by? Where do you think we should take research, investigation? What do you think is the is, is an interesting direction that we could go with this insight that, you know, community management comes from? It, it, there's a strong similarity between sports management and um, blockchain community management. Yeah, I'm, I'm really fascinated with, with the area. And look, I have been dabbling in, in cryptocurrency investment. I use that term very lightly for about five years. And I, I'd be embarrassed to reveal how, how I've gone with that uh, in this forum. But uh, <laughs> it, it, one we'll of the things... We all our gains and losses <laughs> at the end of each episode. You? Oh, God. <laughs> uh, <laughs> a whole lot of reasons why I don't want to go into that. Um but, uh, you know, one of the things that, that you know, I see is, is you're dealing with a, a technology here that, that has a lot going against it as far as being easy to market. When we talk about what sort of consumer innovations are, are easy to, to market, well, they're things that have got a clear relative advantage over the existing. They're easy to discuss. They're compatible with, with current systems. They're easy to try. 
and uh, and they're easy to talk about and communicate. And you know, a lot of these these things we're talking about here just they're, they're supposed to disrupt. They're supposed to you know change things quite radically. And so they they fly in the face of what would be an easy to market market product. And the the solution to that, the way out of that is going to have really strong advocates, really strong word of mouth, and 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 what we call consumer innovators. And and your communities reflect that they are the consumer innovators. All consumer innovators, you know, first in to buy any product or use any product, always look a bit different from the rest of the market. And there's always that challenge in in spreading it to you know your, your early majority and late majority that follow. But they're, they're critical. If you don't have that group, nothing happens because. The difference between an early adopter and an innovator and a later adopter is innovators typically adopt off uh, um, standard communications, whereas later adopters adopt pr- pretty much primarily off word of mouth. So they're being recommended. You don't get those recommendations if you don't have those first innovators. So, you know, these communities would be full of people that have made their own decision. This is the right thing for them to get involved in based off, you know, things they've read and, and other sources without really knowing a lot of people involved initially. And they've gone in and done it. And they're the group that is going to then spread the, the further uh, adoption and diffusion of this innovation. So, um, you know, to me, that's really exciting. We can model that. Um, Frank Bass did some great work on modeling the diffusion of innovations back in the late 60s, early 70s. So we could look at some of these communities, look at what's going on within them and really model how likely they are to diffuse throughout the rest of the you know, rest of society. So they're the sorts of things that are interesting. Interesting. Plus the stuff we've spoken about today, just the how do you manage this group so that it can grow, not lose what it's really doing to provide value now, but it can grow and not alienate sort of lighter users and, and people who are less interested because you're going to need them going forward. Some fantastic points in this and, and I found it yeah, a very engaging and, and relevant conversation, I guess, to both the other sports marketing academics that are hopefully listening as well as our sort of regular community of well, our own community of um, of academics interested in blockchain technologies. So thank you so much to Professor Heath McDonald, Jason Potts and Chris Berg. And thank you for joining us for this episode of Mint and Burn. You can check out the show notes and get in touch if you have ideas or feedback on the podcast at rmitblockchain.io.